You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. On the night of May 9th, 1986, a young mother was showering when a masked, knife-wielding man snuck into her Garden District apartment in New Orleans. When he attacked her in the bathroom, he threatened that he'd hurt her eight-year-old son if she didn't cooperate. Moving to a bedroom, he put a t-shirt over her head, forced her to perform oral sex, and raped her twice. Plenty of seminal fluid was collected in a rape kit, as well as her undergarments, but this was before the era of DNA testing. Additionally, the assailant's blood type could not be detected, so the investigation hinged on her limited description and a composite sketch. Six weeks later, 17-year-old Sullivan Walter was arrested for an unrelated burglary. While he was in custody, one officer felt that Sullivan was a match for the composite sketch of the rapist. Upon viewing his photo, the victim agreed. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we're speaking to a man who was a child when he was wrongfully convicted. And his case is a perfect example of how solid proof of innocence can fail at setting an innocent person free. And that's exactly what happened two years after Sullivan Walter's conviction. But yet he spent over 34 more years in Louisiana Corrections. Sullivan, I'm honored to have you here with us, even though I hate the reason why you're here. But... Welcome to the show. Yes, sir. And joining him is the legal director of Innocence Project New Orleans, otherwise known as IPNO, a great organization that deserves your support. Richard Davis, thank you for being here, and welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. So all of this took place in New Orleans, which under the DA that oversaw this case, the notorious DA, Harry Connick Sr., New Orleans became the most incarcerated city in the most incarcerated state in the most incarcerated country in the world, probably in the history of the world. And so knowing that, the story you're about to hear, unfortunately, will come as no surprise. And Sullivan, you grew up in New Orleans, right? Yes, I grew up in the city of New Orleans. My mother was the mother of 11, um, the 10th of 11 children. 
my mother had kids in a previous marriage and some of the kids were being raised by their father and my mother and my father separated when I was very young. My mother raised me and my younger sister and my brother right over me as a single parent. I didn't do well in school. I would find ways to get out of school and just, just hang around in the neighborhood. I grew up in a high crime area. You know, I just found myself having more of a family in the streets than what I actually had at home. My family didn't have much. So, you know, I found myself resulting to, you know, criminal activities. You know, I mean, nothing major, but just in order to, you know, have some money in my pocket, a pair of shoes, a pair of pants or something, just to try and make up where, you know, my mother wasn't able to. And so you had at least been processed for that behavior and your fingerprints were on file, et cetera. And so that brings us to the summer of 1986 when you had just turned 17. Yeah, I was arrested for a burglary and it occurred on Laurel Street, Laura and Amelia. I mean, it's uptown New Orleans. And it was basically just household items, stereo equipment, small stuff, you know, cameras, something like that. The burglary occurred on a Saturday. I was arrested Monday morning. Do you know how they honed in on you? Yeah, I, I was picked up because there were a window pane that my fingerprint was actually found on. And while in police custody, you know, that's what led to me being charged with a, with a crime that I had nothing to do with. Right. And this burglary happened on June 21st, 1986. And the police got you, the right person, on Monday morning, June 23rd. But then somehow signals got crossed, lanes were switched, and you ended up spending 36 years in prison, not for the burglary, but for a rape that occurred about six weeks earlier on May 9th, 1986, in the Garden District neighborhood of New Orleans. Richard, can you fill us in on what happened that night? So on the night of May the 9th to May 10th, 1986, a woman was cleaning her home. The only other person in her home was her young son who was asleep. She was showering after doing some cleaning and was disturbed by someone breaking in and that person attacked and raped her. At all times during the rape, the person either was covering their face or the lights were off or they were threatening the victim at knife point not to look at him. And so while it was a fairly traumatic experience for her, it was one in which there was actually a limited opportunity to observe the person who attacked her. Right. And as I've read, not only did the assailant have half of his face covered by a washcloth, but then after dragging her out of the shower, it's like a horror scene, he put a T-shirt over her head and he threatened her at knife point to cooperate or he would hurt her eight-year-old son. Then he took her into a bedroom where he forced her to perform oral sex and then vaginally raped her twice. It's just... It's awful. But despite both of their face coverings, she was able to tell the police some details, right? Yeah. So the victim described it as a, a young assailant. She thought 18 to 20 years old, 5'11", slender, with thick eyebrows and a jerry curl. The reports of the night of a crime is that she said the attacker had stubble. But there are two different police documents showing she told two different officers on the night of a crime that it was an assailant with like two to three days beard growth. And then there was a composite sketch he did a few days after the crime with a police sketch artist. Okay, so either some stubble or two to three days growth. But facial hair growth varies. So these descriptions could mean the same thing depending on who you're talking to. And then the victim said that the assailant was wearing a baseball cap. Yes, and she described it as a blue baseball cap, but nothing else distinctive about it. So Sullivan, how did you compare to this description? I am, in fact, 5'11". 
I was very thin. I didn't have a jerry curl. As far as facial hairs prior to my arrest, I had never grown facial hairs. Right. For a 17-year-old, that's not surprising. Yeah, I had just turned 17. So even though your age, height, skin tone, and build were similar, your lack of facial hair, or at the very least not having a jerry curl, should have ruled you out or cast at least serious doubt on this. But clearly, it did not. Now, six weeks passed after the rape before you became a suspect. Did the investigators have any other leads during that time? There are some indications in the officer's notes they may have had other suspects, but we were never able to figure out what those notes meant for sure. From his interviews with the victim, he come to believe it was an experienced perpetrator. There was also some indication that someone who seemed to match the description or the composite sketch had been loitering around the area of the crime beforehand. But the composite wasn't all they had to go on, right? This was a rape. So what about the physical evidence? There was a lot of it. The perpetrator had ejaculated twice during the rape. And so this was, you know, a good scene for forensic evidence. They did the normal sexual assault exam and also collected the undergarments that the victim had worn after the crime. And based on the victim's sexual history, any product detected was coming from the perpetrator. And so the items were quickly tested by the police department. Granted, this was 1986, so they were only working with serology, not DNA. And if I understand this correctly, the undergarments were tested by Harry O'Neill, a criminalist working with NOPD, New Orleans Police Department, while Patricia Daniels with the coroner's office tested the rape kit. So these are two separate tests, but they're both coming to the same conclusion, which is they cannot detect any blood type activity in the seminal stains and spermatozoa found on the evidence. So with serology, there are really only two ways to narrow down a field of suspects blood typing like A, B, A, B, and O, and then secretor status, which refers to whether or not your blood type shows up in other bodily fluids like semen or saliva. The majority of the population secretes their blood type into their bodily fluids, but some percentage of the population doesn't, and they, from these two different tests, are not finding any indication of blood type being secreted into the bodily fluids of the perpetrator. So the assailant was among the 20% of the population who are non-secretors, which unfortunately is quite convenient for the assailant. But secretor status still offers a way to narrow a field of suspects, even if only to the exclusion of 80% of the population. So this was all the police had to go on, along with a composite sketch from a victim who, who really didn't get a great look at her assailant. So how did they land on Sullivan? Officially, what happened in the investigation is six weeks after the crime, as the police tell it, an officer working in the burglary case was doing a fingerprint check of Sullivan from the burglary case, saw his photo, thought, gosh, this guy looks a lot like this composite sketch, even though he doesn't look that much like the composite sketch. We should probably consider him a suspect in this unsolved rape we've had from six weeks earlier. And so an officer in the print unit supposedly coming up with this eureka moment this is the basis by which the detective from the rape case goes back to the victim with a photo of sullivan so this composite sketch didn't really look like sullivan yet their focus still landed on him sullivan how do you remember this all going down well the burglary i was being questioned about it they wanted to know where the property was they wanted to know if there was someone else involved and when i didn't cooperate well Ultimately, I was threatened that if I didn't cooperate and if I didn't tell them what they wanted to know, then they would see to it that I was given a life sentence. I mean, they didn't mention the crime that I would be punished with. They didn't question about a rape, you know, so they played good cop, bad cop and threatened me 
you know, I didn't have an adult present. I didn't have an attorney present. And they had me to take Polaroid pictures a certain way with a baseball cap on, turned to the back. And I had no knowledge that this was the actual description that was given of the perpetrator of the rape charge that I would later be charged with. So after he has been booked on the burglar and they've taken these photos, the detective goes to see the victim with a photo array and the photos they've taken. We don't have a recording of this procedure. It's a cross-racial identification procedure. It's also being administered by the detective who knows who the suspect is, which you know now you would have to do an identification double-blind, even without any deliberate malfeasance. If the person knows who the suspect is, that influences the witness making a description. And how it is described later, and again, we have no recording, is that the victim views a photo array picks out Sullivan in some form and is then shown, I believe, Polaroids of Sullivan in the hat, which kind of reinforces the identification as a kind of like, well, and he wore his hat like this too. So at the end of this identification procedure, the victim is making an identification of Sullivan. So we have no idea what kind of suggestions were being made to the victim. And then add to that, the toxic fact that it was cross-racial which study after study has proven is less accurate than guessing. And this is one of the challenging things about the cases. We do not have the photo array he was identified from, and we don't even know with any certainty what photo they had of Sullivan in the array, let alone who were the fillers and if they looked anything like him or not. We don't have the photo lineup, so we don't actually know. So Jerry Curls and facial hair or not, they got their cross-racial misidentification while Sullivan was already being held on the burglary charge. Now, Sullivan, when did you find out about the rape charge? After being charged with a burglary while in central lockup, either the following day or the day after that, I was taken back down and I was charged with another burglary, a rape, two counts of crime against nature, which was all one case. This was the rape charge. And after finding out a bit more about this charge, were you able to remember where you were at on May 9th? I mean, I was arrested six weeks after this rape had occurred. So... I would be lying if I said, well, I was here, I was there six weeks ago. I don't know where I was at six weeks ago. And you're barely 17. So it's not like you had a daily planner or like a, you know, a calendar like we all have on our phones now these days. So you weren't sure where you were on that day, but it certainly wasn't the Garden District. Did they try to corroborate the identification with the physical evidence? So they took blood and saliva from Sullivan pre-trial, apparently. So charge first, do the science later. And according to the report at the time, they somehow fouled the sample so badly, they didn't even detect Sullivan's blood type. So at the time of trial, they didn't know his blood type, let alone whether he's a secretor or not. And then at the 11th hour, right before trial, they disclose this evidence that the perpetrator was a non-secretor, but the case goes ahead to trial anyway. So at this point, the prosecution didn't get a second sample from Sullivan to be sure that they had the right person. But also, the law says the state needs to give stuff to the defense in enough time for them to be able to use it. So what's the answer to the million-dollar question? I think I can actually predict this, but go ahead. My blood type is B, and I am a secretor. So it was fully impossible that you could have committed this crime. As far as we can tell, no one knows Sullivan's secretor status at this time. They just plowed ahead with the trial. 
And I think you've got to wonder, do you in fact not want a scientific answer because it might contradict your witness? Nevertheless, the trial began and ended on the same day, December 2nd, 1986. The NOPD's criminalist, O'Neill, unwittingly testified to your innocence at trial that the assailant was a non-secretor, but no one cared to discover, let alone make the jury aware of your secretor status. Makes sense for the prosecutor. They already had an identification from the victim, after all. She got on the stand and they asked us some questions about the crime and asked her, did she see the perpetrator in the court? She said that I was the perpetrator of the crime. And without knowing your secretor status or your whereabouts on May 9th, 1986, this was probably an easy decision for the jury. I mean, I was in and out of trial within an hour or so. I mean, the state presented the physical evidence. They presented the expert witnesses. They presented the, the victim. It was never anything presented on my behalf. And I was found guilty. And then you were sentenced to 35 years in prison. I mean, it, 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 it was so disturbing to me. My family was unable to help me. I had nobody to come and, 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 and give me advice. I was 17, so I couldn't begin to try and figure this out, understand this. I didn't think that this could happen to me. I didn't think it could happen to anybody. It was like, man, this, this can't be real. This episode is sponsored by Marsh McLennan, the world's leading professional services firm in the areas of risk, strategy, and people. Its legal and compliance department provides pro bono legal assistance and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. After being convicted to have to go to prison for a rape crime, you know, this is one of the most degrading crimes that a man could be charged with in prison other than child molestation you're an outcast i mean you don't have friends you're perfect however they want to describe you then that's what it is so this has a real effect on a 17 or 18 year old because now you got to try to find ways to protect yourself and you know my only hopes was Man, this is going to be fixed. And then my lawyer, he tell me, we're going to be able to get you out of here. I'm going to get you out of here. I'm going to test you and we're going to present your blood results and I'm going to get you out of here. So that's all I was hoping for. My day in court. So there's an initial appeal after the trial, which the sole issue his lawyer raises, and he only files a three and a half page brief, is that he got the blood typing report too late to be able to use it. The court sends it back with an instruction that you need, we need to figure out this guy's blood type and figure out if he was prejudiced by the late disclosure of the perpetrator's blood typing information because obviously if it was a match to Sal, it's kind of a no harm, no foul. It didn't hurt him, but if it doesn't match him, then it's terrible that the prosecution waits till the morning of trial when it's too late to use it to tell him this information. So then in January 1988, they confirm that he is a type B and that he secretes his blood type into his bodily fluids. So therefore, I was the total opposite of what the state had actually identified in open coat. You can determine my blood type through my saliva, through my seminal fluid. 
I am a secretor. And so this then goes to a hearing on the motion for a new trial to determine, well, we've now shown that Sal has been prejudiced by this late disclosure because his blood type doesn't match. And so this goes to a hearing in 1988. And at this point, the analyst who had said at trial, well, the evidence indicates it was a non-secretor, suddenly is now saying, well, I don't know, maybe like I missed the stain and was testing something else. Can't really say anything about whether the person was a secretor or not. Now, there has been zero change in the evidence between when at trial he says the evidence indicates non-secretor and here two years later when he's in court saying, well, I can't really say anything about this. And if he had a genuine concern about his prior testing, there's nothing to stop him from having retested the evidence then. The only thing that has changed is that now it doesn't help the prosecution for it to be non-secretor because we know that Sullivan is a secretor. And so the defence lawyer doesn't ask him any questions about his prior testimony from the trial and doesn't present any evidence and then doesn't call any expert of his own. And at the end of this, the court waits for a while and then with no real explanation says that Sullivan isn't entitled to a new trial. At this point, Sullivan was entitled to an appointed lawyer for the appeal of that decision, but that lawyer simply did not follow through. For four years, there was no communication, sharing of documents, or strategy, nothing. And then, when the Court of Appeals recognized the dereliction and appointed a new lawyer, it took two more long years before the motion appeared before the court, this time filed on behalf of Walter Sullivan, not Sullivan Walter. So already off to a just a great start, right? I mean, I hope it sounded like I was dripping with sarcasm, because I was. And another denial came in September of 95, but in 97... The Louisiana Supreme Court agreed that the appeals court had been using the wrong legal standard, as if this new evidence had just been found from a neutral source, rather than that this was a late disclosure by the state, which constituted a material Brady violation. The Court of Appeals was then told by the Louisiana Supreme Court, you've got to analyze this under the rules for a non-disclosure rather than just evidence found from a neutral source. The Court of Appeals does actually get the legal standard wrong a second time. This time, they based their denial on O'Neill's altered testimony from the motion for a new trial, rather than his trial testimony that the assailant was, unlike Sullivan, a non-secretor. And then after this ruling, the court-appointed lawyer doesn't take a further appeal to the Louisiana Supreme Court or any kind of a federal court. And so this is it for Sullivan in terms of getting lawyers provided by the state. And I mean, do we have this wrong? Nothing was filed again until 2021? Between 1997 and 2021, no one is helping Sullivan. Oh, God, Sullivan. I mean, you t- that's a quarter century. I mean, you talked about how hard it was for you in prison, even when there was some hope for you in post-conviction. But that's a long, bleak stretch of a lot of years. As I just explained to you, being in prison as a sex offender is not easy. It's not easy at all. Not only the inmate population, but you also have the officers you have to deal with. And then you had the work aspect of prison. I mean, they digging ditches and picking cotton and farm vegetables, stuff that I had never done before in my life. So I didn't know anything about none of this. So I stayed in and out of lockdown, in and out. of. I'm locked up because I didn't know how to do the work. And I'm trying to adjust to this. And then my family, you know, every now and then somebody else would come. But mostly it was my older sister, my mother, 
sadly to say, my mother never visited me while I was in prison. And then my sister dies and nobody's coming to see me. It's hard. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in prison for years, years upon years. My biggest fear in prison was that I didn't want to die in prison for something I didn't do. So I'm trying to take care of myself. I'm trying to stay healthy. And I'm trying not to stress and worry. So I'm just there. I'm existing. It's not living. You know, I, I didn't have a life. I was just existing. And I lost my father. I lost my mother. Man, it, it was a time I actually went over a decade and didn't get a visit. You know, nobody came to see me. Nobody tried to help me. I didn't have the knowledge and education to, you know, go about helping myself. And I don't really know how I managed to do it, but I just believe that God put it within me to survive this situation. And the only thing I could think about is not dying in prison, getting out, and someday trying to find a way to prove my innocence. Because, I mean, man, I was young. I was on drugs. I was in the streets. I was stealing. You know, one thing I know without a doubt, I would have never raped anybody. I would have never committed a rape. I know that without a doubt. And and I just knew that, man, somebody has to help me. But it just seems as if it wasn't going to happen because it went from 10 years to 20 years and then 30 years. So Hypno was established in Innocence Project New Orleans in 2001. Had you ever reached out to them? No, I had no knowledge of the Innocence Project New Orleans. I, I knew nothing of them. I can remember and. 2019, you know, they had started the kiosk machine. People get letters and stuff through the kiosk machine and dudes were like, man, because dudes used to see, man, I ain't never used to write nobody. I never received mail, nothing. I mean, so a friend of mine had told me, dude was like, man, you need to set up the kiosk machine because you can get pictures of your family or, you know, you can get letters. And really in my mind, it's like, man, ain't nobody going to write me. Ain't nobody going to send me no pictures. So... Man, one morning, one morning I came in from work and I looked at the kiosk machine and I had a letter from Mr. Richard Davis and he was like, if you sell a reporters and you was charged and convicted with a rape in 1986 and all of these you need to contact my office immediately, you know, because it's obvious you, you know you've been subjected to an injustice. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Richard, could you have ever imagined that just one email from you carried this much weight? I... I wish we had a system where it didn't make any kind of decision. I wish the system never convicted him, but I wish at the absolute minimum they dealt with him in 1988 when I was five years old and I'd never met him. I like Sullivan a lot, but I wish I'd never met him. I wish we had a system that treated his life as important enough that it was dealt with just by competently conscientious professionals long before I was even doing this work. That's the system people deserve and it's not the system they have. Unfortunately, I have to agree, and this case also could have been resolved much sooner had Sullivan been sentenced differently. During this awful span of 24 years, 1997 to 2021, on the outside, the Supreme Court made some landmark decisions regarding juvenile justice, which ruled that mandatory life sentences and death sentences for children were a violation of the Eighth Amendment ban on cruel and unusual punishment. But Unfortunately, since Sullivan was sentenced to 35 years instead of a life sentence, he didn't qualify to benefit from these new rulings. But a kind of much overdue confluence of positive developments did come along. So how did his case eventually reach your desk, Richard? I had first read about Sullivan's case in, I think, 2011. I was just doing legal research on another case about non-disclosure of evidence. And I'd read the opinion, and to use not very technicalist opinion, I was like, well, that's bullshit that they upheld for conviction in this case. And so it stuck in my head. And then 10 years later, there was a change to the law, which meant that I thought that was a way to represent the case potentially. And then also the district attorney's office had a civil rights division, and I knew they were particularly interested in people who had served over 35 years in prison. So I began gathering files on the case. This of a point I wrote to Sullivan, I just knew what was in the court opinion. And so I just knew what the police officer had said after it didn't suit them for Sullivan to be a non-secretor. And so but one of the first things I got was the trial transcript. And it's like, oh, this guy's completely changed his opinion about the case based on what suits the prosecutor at any given time. And then, as we mentioned earlier, the last denial in appeals court was wrongly based on O'Neill's altered testimony. But the coroner had also had the same findings that the assailant was a non-secretor. So it sure seems like O'Neill had lied, but you still got to prove that. 
And so fortunately, there's a guy called Alan Keel, who I'd worked with as a DNA analyst. And he, before he was a DNA analyst, he was a serologist. So he was willing to consult on the case. And so I'd sent him all the materials. And then basically, the reason it looked like bullshit, that the guy changed his testimony like that is because it was. And he is able to give a report explaining, you know, in scientific terms, that there's no reason this guy should have changed his opinion. And some of the reasons he gives for the second opinion he gives, if that was true, it really like calls into question whether he should be any kind of scientist at all. I mean, he's he's wrapping it up in fancy words, but what he's essentially saying is, well, maybe I didn't get any secretor evidence because instead of testing the stain, I tested a bit of fabric next to the stain accidentally, which... I mean, if you believe for a second that was true, why not go back and test the evidence again? So you found a credible source in Kiel to confirm what was clear to everyone, that O'Neill's shady change of opinion at the motion for new trial hearing was total horseshit. But it unfortunately upheld Sullivan's wrongful conviction long after his secretor status had proven his actual innocence all the way back in January 1988, when Orleans Parish DA Harry Connick Sr. was still in office. And after him... Leon Canizzaro was unfortunately no better. However, in 2020, Jason Williams was elected, ushering in a much-needed and long-overdue era of sanity. So in early 2022, I presented this case to the Civil Rights Division, a woman named Melissa Montel, who immediately saw that this guy should not be in prison. And so while I think the evidence we had found, I think if we had had to litigate the case, I think Sullivan was legally entitled to have his conviction thrown out. The district attorney's office actually signed off on agreeing to it. So this was the rare case where we could actually file a joint motion with the district attorney's office asking the court to vacate his conviction. And then Judge Daryl Durbany, we went into court shortly before we filed it, explained the case to him, and he's like, yeah, get this case to me. He understood that this is something he wanted to sign off on too. I mean, the judge, you know, he seemed to be very disturbed by this, and and, and he made some statements, uh, quote unquote, he stated that, you know, to say that this was unconscionable would be an understatement. You know, and he actually asked them, you know, what happened? Why is it this guy has been in prison all these years after this physical evidence was presented? on his behalf. And then the prosecutor, she was like, you know, man, this shouldn't have happened. These people actually lied. And so, yeah, Sullivan's conviction was vacated. Yeah, well, luckily you have Jason Williams in office rather than Connick Sr. or Leon Canizzaro. Leon Canizzaro was the judge who denied the motion for a new trial after the blood typing came back, proving Sullivan was a type B secretor. Wait, wait, wait. So, Canizzaro... This character was the one who watched O'Neill blatantly lie about the evidence that proved your actual innocence, and still denied your motion for a new trial. Right. And then became district attorney for the 17 years following Harry Connick Sr. You know what? Let's just move on to the good stuff. You had your conviction finally vacated in the summer of 2022. It was in August, August the 25th. But the week prior to that, Mr. Davis called me and he told me that, you know, I was going to be going back to court and that, you know, I was going to be exonerated. And, and, and he asked me, he said, how you feel? In that moment, you know, I told him, you know, I feel as if I could breathe. Because, man, for, for all them years, it was like I couldn't breathe. My whole life was taken from me. And, and, and as I said, I can't tell you what I would have done had I not went to prison. I don't know what would have happened to me in the streets, but what I do know with absolute certainty is I would have never 
raped a woman ever. That's one of the hard things about this case. Even though I'm out and I'm free, the victim is deceased. So I never see this woman. I never look her in her eyes and, and, and she'll never know. And then my mother, my sister, these are people I would have wanted to know that I didn't do this. You know, I wanted them to see that day. And this victim, she wasn't only a victim to a rape. She was also a victim to injustice as well. Because, I mean, the criminal justice system didn't serve her because the perpetrator of the crime never was brought to justice. Yeah, you'd think that even just out of pure self-interest, right, for the for their own safety of their own families, right? You'd think that these folks in law enforcement would want to get the actual perpetrator off the street and save all the future potential victims from enduring a horrible ordeal like this poor person did, this poor woman. But that's not what happened here with you, Sullivan. And in so many other cases, so... Now, you're out. I understand that you've got steady work, but is there a GoFundMe or some other way our audience can support you? Well, from my release, you know, the Innocent Project has a, a client service person who helps helps out, and there were a GoFundMe page. All right, well, we'll make sure that we have that linked in the bio. And now, of course, we've come to my favorite part of the show called Closing Arguments, where I, first of all, thank you both for being here with us and courageously sharing this incredible, harrowing story. I'm going to turn my microphone off, leave my headphones on, close my eyes and kick back in my chair and just listen to anything else you guys want to share. Richard, let's start with you and then Sullivan Walter, you can take us right on out into the sunset. So I think Sullivan's case beyond, you know, his own story, of course, is just a real demonstration of how much power the system gives people without expecting any kind of responsibility or thoroughness. It's just the the incredible fecklessness with which his case was treated and the incredible power they have to define his life while being incredibly careless about it. That That's what I see is that, you know, this is not a, a well-hidden injustice. This was right there in the open from 1988. And it just, you know, a real staggering lack to consider Sullivan a person worthy of care. You know, he's not asking for some kind of like extraordinary favor or kindness out of the system. Just a basic level of care is all it would have taken. Anyone who hears my story, you know, if you, you listen and you hear my story, you know, all I ask is that, you know, you understand and know that, you know, these things happen and it didn't just happen to me. It happens to many people throughout the country. You know, people have been subjected to injustice and, and wrongful incarceration and put in prison for extended amount of times. And, and you can't make up for it. You know, I mean, 36 years, it's impossible to make up for it. So... You know, life is very hard for me, but I live. I live and, you know, I just try to make the best of it. And I thank God for everything and I embrace life. I want to live. You know, I want to live. I want to live life to its fullest. But it's, it's, it's a real challenge, you know. I lost my mother, my father, my family. I don't have any kids. And I lost a lot. I'm 54 years old. I don't have kids. 
you know, a lot was taken from me. You know, I, I just was denied a chance to live life. And I believe that I'm, I know, I don't believe it. I know it without a doubt. I'm a good person. I'm a good man. And, you know, I believe that I would have made the best out of life. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. You can listen to this and all the Lava for Good podcasts one week early by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, and Kathleen Fink, as well as my fellow executive producers, Jeff Kempler, Kevin Wardis, and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us across all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can also follow me on Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.